Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of New Books Network. I'm Morteza Hajizadeh, your host from Critical Theory Channel. Today, we are glad to have Peter Salmon with us. Peter Salmon is an Australian writer living in the UK. His first novel, The Coffee Story, was a new new, uh, statements book of the year. He has written for The Guardian, The New Humanist, The Sydney Review of Books and Tablet, as well as Australian TV and radio. He also teaches creative writing. And today, he's here to talk with us about uh, his biography of Jack Derrida, a book uh, called An Event, Perhaps, a biography of Jack Derrida, published by Verso Publisher. Peter, thank you very much for being here. Thank you, Morteza. R- really happy to be here and always love talking about Mr. Derrida. Fantastic. <laughs> thank you. Uh, so tell us a little about yourself, Peter. I know that you studied philosophy. What uh, attracted you to Jacques Derrida, who is a notoriously difficult philosopher? Yeah, well, I found him notoriously difficult at, when I was at university as well. And um, and to be honest, I did what I think many people who studied him, particularly in the, the 90s and, and, and 80s, did, which was to pretend to have read him. Um, I mean, I think he's one of those writers who is so rebarbative in many ways that, you know, you, you've got some kudos for carrying a copy of, of Grammatology around, but actually trying to read him was um, incredibly difficult. And I have to admit, I didn't really get him at the time. Um, I thought I got him and I got little bits of him. And I, I think for many people, you add some of what he thinks about to your toolkit um, in the same way that you might know a bit of Freud and therefore you talk about the unconscious or you talk about you know, verbal slippage and so forth. So you, you would talk about um, deconstruction or, or talk about putting things in quotation marks and those sorts of things. So a really sort of basic level of understanding. And I think when I came to write the biography, it was really written for my sort of 20-year-old self struggling away with Derrida and trying to get my head around him. And for other people like me, that, you know, Derrida crosses your path when you're studying academically, whether you're doing philosophy or critical theory or film theory, gender studies and so forth. He comes into your into your knowledge. But he wrote a lot and he wrote very, very densely. Um, so when when I got the opportunity to write about him, it really was a question of going right back to the beginning for me and trying to understand trying to understand him to start with, but also to try and understand how he fitted into philosophy and how this this sort of wild maverick figure was more than that, was an actual philosopher, was an actual thinker, and that his ideas had a real coherence and, and made sense over, over a long time. So, so, you know, starting the biography, I was, like many people, terrified of Derrida. Um, I still have moments of being terrified by him. Um, but hopefully I've managed to sort of explicate some of his ideas in a way that's, you know, that people can understand and certainly perhaps that my, my 24-year-old self would have understood. Yeah, yeah, you mentioned an interesting point about trying to understand him and that was your foray into Derrida. Uh, I understand that uh, there was another biography of Jack Derrida. I think it was published in 2014, if I'm not mistaken. And Jack Derrida himself wrote an autobiography of himself, right? It's a, uh, tell us why you decided to write this book and how does your book differ from uh, the other biography of Derrida that is available? Yeah. I mean, the first thing to say is, and I, I'm, I'm, I freely admit this, I wrote the book because I got a commission to do so. Um, and why, I, why I'm sort of free to admit that, although you know, writers tend to try and hide that and say, oh, I passionately thought about Derrida for years, um, was that I'd written an article about him. Um, I, I hadn't read him for a long time. I, it hadn't been an anniversary of, of a conference he gave. 
and I pitched the, the idea for this and um, it actually got bumped a few times from the issue of New Humanist it was supposed to come into. Um, I'd pretty much forgotten it to come out and then I got the commission. Um, so it was really firing in the dark, as it were. And the reason I think that's important is, is kind of what I was saying just before, that I really then had to start from the beginning. And one of the problems with Derrida, I think, is there are a lot of people who are very anti-Derrida, but there are also a lot of people who are very pro-Derrida. And once you're pro-Derrida, A, because there are so many people who are anti, you, you feel you have to defend your turf. And B, Derrida, as we, I'm sure we'll come to, really has this idea that you can't pin down words, that you can't, you can't nail their meaning. And once you have that insight, and other philosophers have had that insight, but what Derrida then did was say, if that's the case, we have to write in a very different way. Um, and I think a lot of people who are supporters of Derrida, um, and rightly so, and know more about Derrida than I ever would, tend to take on some of those ways of writing and, and communicating him, which within the clique, as it were, um, negative word, it shouldn't be clique, but within Derridean scholarship, that's obviously valid. Um, you know, if brain surgeons get together, they talk brain surgery language. My effort was to try and bring it down to a level that people who didn't have that background could understand. But I was very, very, very desperate not to traduce his ideas or not to simplify him, to really try and do it in such a way that I was that I was being authentic with his ideas, but that was understandable and explicable. Um, the Benoit Peters biography, uh, which came out in French a bit earlier than 2014, English translation 2014, is a fantastic book. Um, and I did lean heavily on it for the events of Derrida's life. Um, but it is a comprehensive biography. You know, it is what Derrida was eating on a particular day, what he was doing on a particular day. Um, which is not to say that it doesn't also look at his intellectual ideas. And there are passages in the book which are very, very good on, on philosophy. Um, but my, my commission was to really do an intellectual biography. So the bits of his life that were relevant to the philosophy went in um, and to try and structure it around so that I could see his ideas developing and, and changing over time. Um, whereas the Peters is, this is the first biography of a major thinker. Let's get everything in. It was done you know, um, in collaboration with the, um, with the wife of Derrida. Um, and it's very comprehensive. If you want to know everything about Derrida, including his thinking, I don't want to make it sound like it's a pot boiler, including his thinking, that's a very good book. But mine was, if you if you want to see the intellectual journey and you want to know what deconstruction is, then this is this is how you do it. Um, so 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 that was that for me. And sorry, I've forgotten the other part of your question, which was. Uh, fine. Yeah, uh, we'll talk about it as we go uh, as we as we go further into the interview. That was uh, Derrida himself writing. Oh yes, uh, of course. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Derrida didn't actually write an autobiography per se. Um, one of the things I flag very early in the introduction is, of course, any biography of someone is a version of their life. And particularly when it comes to Derrida, Derrida was the same as you can't down, pin down the meaning of words. You can't pin down someone's life. Um, but Derrida did get more and more autobiographical as he, as he wrote. Um, and then probably the closest thing he wrote to autobiography was called Monolingual, Monolingualism of the Other. Um, which talked about his Algerian childhood and talked about how his thoughts and identity developed and how his childhood fed into that and, and the ways that it didn't. So it was quite autobiographical. And that was very tactical by, by Derrida and flows from his philosophy in that ultimately Derrida thought in some way that uh, a person's philosophy was very contextual. And, that, of course, one of the contexts of a person is their, is their life. So, you know, th these ideas that the truth is somehow above life and outside of life, for Derrida, 
that that was on that was untrue. You know, he he at one stage famously in an interview say said something like, "I want to know about Kant and Hegel's sex lives." You know, I want to know who these people are because as I think we're much more used to now, but perhaps not so used to back in the days of Derrida, certainly early Derrida, we are very open to the fact that your your financial position, your class, your you know the color of your skin, your religion, and these things feed into who you are and they form your identity. So for Derrida, if an identity performs philosophy X, then it's interesting to look at that personality to find out how that how that philosophy comes from, you know, where it comes from. You know, Kant writing about race in the 17th or 18th century is because Kant has a particular position within German um, social life and 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 you know an imperial culture and all of those things. So so Derrida was very much he felt a duty, as it were, to bring himself into his philosophy. And uh, as you mentioned, uh, this is an intellectual biography of Jacques Derrida. When I read it myself, there were lots and lots of interesting points about his childhood, his years in Algeria and his era, and uh, when he traveled to France, uh, which could help me better understand his ideas. Mm. So uh, let us start with the title of the book, An Event Perhaps. What does it refer yes. to? First, a few things, and I've, I've just got to say the one thing I'm really, really proud of about the book, because everything else I lay awake at night going, did I get that right? Did I get this right? Is the title. I can't remember how I came up with the title. Um, but it's, since it's, a, it's an English gloss of the introduction to the paper he gave at the conference I was talking about. Um, it was a conference to introduce structuralism to America. So structuralism, sort of Levi-Strauss, Foucault, those sort of thinkers, although Foucault would say he wasn't. Um, it's, it's looking at how we get meaning by looking at structures. So a word doesn't mean something by itself. It, it means where it fits in a sentence. Um, an identity doesn't mean something by itself. It's where it fits into a community, those sort of things. Derrida spoke at this conference and he was the last person. He was someone else. It was it's classic Hollywood, really. Someone else pulled out and, you know, is there a philosopher in the house? Derrida arrives, gives the last paper with, you know, people dribbling off and, you know, only 12 people in the room and then more people coming into the room sort of thing. And he basically destroyed the structuralist pro, um, process. Um, and, you know, structuralism existed before he started and was pretty much dead by the time he finished. And we'll come for the reason for that in a moment. But he started with saying an event perhaps has happened in the history of philosophy, and that's an event called structuralism. Um, so it comes to an extent from there. What Derrida argued um, is that a structure always has to have a term outside it that guarantees the structure. So the structure of religion requires God outside to guarantee the structure or, you know, um, uh, 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 truth. Philosophy needs truth outside the structure to guarantee we keep, keep talking about philosophy. Um, so that was that was how he destroyed structural, structuralism, as it was. But the word perhaps, well, two, the two parts of that, an event and perhaps, were also very important things for Derrida. Um, the idea of an event, what makes an event, what what do we say about an event? Um, this is not exclusive to Derrida. Um, Badiou also talks a lot about the event. How do we define something? You know, the 1968 May stuff, um, 20, you know, 9-11 or Fall of the Berlin, all these are major events. But what is an event? What is trans what has changed? What is being transferred? But Derrida was also very obsessed by the word perhaps. Um, and particularly in books like Politics of Friendship, a later book, um, he looks at the idea of perhaps as at any point in the world, we are standing at a pivot point and we don't know what will happen. But a lot of our life is based on perhaps. Perhaps revolution will come. Perhaps I'll win the lottery. You know, perhaps I'll fall in love. And we actually structurally in ourselves build ourselves around these perhapses. 
And these perhaps is almost have a, a, an ontological status. They're almost a thing that we live with and that we incorporate. So the word perhaps for him was a very sort of interesting um, word to, to play with and, and, and to look at as part of the structuring experience of our life. I'm sure we'll talk about it a little bit more when I uh, when we get to the idea of ontology. That's one of the questions I'd like to bring up. Now, let's yeah. talk a little about his childhood. Uh, one of the amazing facts was that uh, his parents were a big fan of Charlie Chaplin. And yes. Jack was named after uh, after the boy, I guess, in the movie, The Kid. But, yes. So, so, for those of you who have seen the, um, the Adams Family, Jackie Coogan, who um, played Uncle Fester, um, the bald-headed one who put light bulbs in his mouth. He was a child star, and um, Jackie Coogan was in um, in the, the, um, one of the early Chaplin films, which Derrida's parents went to see. So, in fact, he's not Jacques Derrida. He is Jackie Derrida. That was his actual name. Um, so named after Jackie Coogan, which I, was, was one of those nice little facts. That, that was almost when I, where I thought, oh, I, I maybe can write this biography. I, I can remember this is just a... A, a little fellow called Jackie, who you know suddenly be, ends up being Jacques Derrida, but that's the that's the transition. So yeah, yeah, that was a, that was a very cool fact. Yeah. And uh, he was born at a time when uh, France was celebrating its hundred years of uh, colonization of Algeria, and he was a Jew in a French family living in Algeria, and he was also born in Algeria. And there is yeah. this quote in your book that I really love, uh, which says that uh, for Derrida, selfless was thrice dissociated, fractured by three interdicts. Can you talk about his childhood and the events that really influenced his later thinking? Absolutely, yes. So for, for those who may not be aware of the, the whole history of it, um, France arrived in Algeria in 1830. This is in the Great Scramble for Africa. Um, took it over and in, in a slightly different way to say imperialist countries, um, empire countries like England, uh, or Britain, sorry, um, it pretty much gave citizenship to certain parts of the population. So Derrida, um, we'll, leave, we'll come back to the question of him being Jewish, but he was born up. He was brought up as a French boy, um, despite being born there. His parents born there, and and, and so on, um, and his his family having lived there for for a long, long time. Um, he was part of the class that were educated in French. He learned the French language. Um, all the geography lessons he did were French. All the history lessons he did with, were French. Um, he always referred to France as the over there. It was this kind of imaginary space. And again, this comes back to hauntology that we'll come to, we'll come to later. Um, so he's brought up as a French boy. So that obviously separates him from the predominantly Arab population around him. And I had the, I had the privilege recently, and if, if you happen to live in a country which gets Arte TV, A-R-T-E dot TV, um, it's a very good European channel. And there was a documentary about Algeria around the time of Derrida, which I spent the entire time looking for little, you know, Jackie Derrida running around. Um, and it really does show, I mean, a massively, you know, majority population, Arabic, Arab population at that time. So he's surrounded by, he's in an enclave, surrounded by an Arab population. When he went out on the street, you know, he, he would be amongst them speaking his French and not really understanding the language going on around him. So that's the first kind of interdict. The second one is that he's Jewish. Um, now, within the French community, um, all the French community, but also in Algeria, um, to be Jewish has been a, a very complex thing. Um, obviously, we know about things like the Dreyfus case in the early 20th century, but there has been a lot of anti-Semitism. It's coming back in the French election at the moment um, with, with some of the stuff that's going on. 
Um, but what had happened in Algeria was there had been a decree which gave the Jews French citizenship. So this again separates them from the Arab population who don't have citizenship. But then within the French, all these French citizens, the Jewish population is seen as somehow beneath or below. Um, and so, so in, in both cases, he's sort of seen as above the Arabs, below the French, but he's French and Arabic and Jewish. Also, he had quite dark skin. So um, I, I'm sure this was less of a factor, but he was often mistaken for an Arab. So even the Jews sort of were against him because they thought he was Arab. So there's this whole melting pot um, going on and a very complex one. And in all cases, he felt very uncomfortable with his own skin in, in many, many ways. Um, and I, I put forward in the book, as he did himself, that this kind of split identity was very important when he came to his philosophy that, you know, for one of philosophy's hopes, one of its dreams is that we have a stable identity. Okay, so if you, if you look at sort of logic or, you know, you look at analytic philosophy and, and all of those things, they sort of say, you know, Descartes, you have consciousness. And that consciousness doesn't matter if you're, you know, black, white, red, a Martian, whatever, you have that and you can then hypothesize about human being from that. Whereas for Derrida, he just had this very mixed up identity and was very open to this idea that identity is, is both fluid, you're making it yourself, but also it's very contextual that, you know, there is, there is no sort of human mind that everyone has in the middle of this thing that, that, that guarantees everything. The, the main thing, though, that, that then happened, so we've got all that happening. Um, he was born in 1930. So um, in you know, 1943, it was, sorry, 1940, um, we have Vichy France. So, you know, basically Nazi collaboration in, in France, um, uh, Marshal Patain and so on. So you have a essentially national socialist government in, in France, you know, more or less. And they were even harsher in Algeria. And one of the, the things was that Jewish quotas came in. Um, so Jewish work quotas, and they got smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller until eventually the Jews were expelled from school. Um, and this happened to, to Derrida when he was 13. Um, and A, we, we all know things that happen to you with it when you're 13 are really huge. Um, but also Derrida went from being this sort of French citizen, um, somehow separate, but, you know, guaranteed citizenship, to having no citizenship. You know, citizenship was taken from the French Jews. Um, and to not be a citizen of any country is, is a hell of a thing to happen. And, you know, it happens to lots of people now. And Derrida was very aware and wrote a lot about borders and citizenship later in his life. Um, but the other thing it did, I think, and I think he thought, because he said this was the most traumatic experience of his life, he then ended up having to go to a Jewish school um, taught by Jewish teachers who were also expelled from, from their professions. And this deeply affected him in the sense that he was suddenly told he was this thing. It doesn't matter if he was told he was Jewish. It was this thing. This is your identity now. Everything else about you doesn't matter so much. The main, central, most important thing about you is you're Jewish. And so citizenship goes, he's given this label, and he'd been brought up in a very secular Jewish society. The, the, the Algerian Jewish community were very secular, at least his part of it. Um, you know, they, 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 they didn't really use many of the Jewish terms, but suddenly that's who he is. A year later, the war changes and he's given back his citizenship and goes back to his, the old school. Um, so he, he, he became incredibly aware of how arbitrary identity is and how arbitrary power is 
and that powerful forces that you didn't understand and, you know, hard enough to understand when you're an adult, but when you're 13, this bizarre thing happens where the government, which is miles and miles away over the other side of an ocean, comes in and takes away your citizenship and tells you you are this thing. And then a year later goes, sorry, uh, things have changed and you've got it back, was very, very unsettling for him. And I think is a major part of his philosophy, that, that unsettling idea that there are forces outside of us which affect us and forces outside us which affect us with not necessarily any logic, you know, that they can be illogical and arbitrary and just do things. And, and so we're never, we're never 100% safe in ourselves. Everything can change. Um, and obviously we're living at a, a time at the moment where some of the disputes that we thought had been put to rest years ago are kicking off again. And I think it is an unsettling time. And I think Derrida's, Derrida's thinking and philosophy is very, very um, important at this time, looking at that sort of stuff. So, so the Algerian childhood very much affected all of those things for him. Uh, and I guess that's part of the reason that he says that he's a child in the margin of Europe. And uh, to him, it was very difficult to completely pin down the idea of identity or to come up with a monolithic definition of not only identity, but concept concepts like identity let's say yeah absolutely and also and also to um to an extent well two things one to join things you know he he uh, i'm sure we'll come to this but he never sort of became a marxist even though lots of the people around him were and you know it's, it's that, that groucho marx line is that i wouldn't want to be part of any club that would have me as a member um i, I think there are that was you you have to give away part of yourself in order to be part of the community to be part of a club and um he struggled with that and he didn't just struggle with it. He looked at it. He theorized it. He looked at why he struggled about it. He didn't just go, I'm not, I'm not joining. Um, so, so that was, that was um, an incredibly important thing, but also, and, and this again comes back to our perhaps, um, he found it very hard to decide. Um, and part of his philosophy is about the moment before a decision is taken. That once a decision is taken, that's the kind of violence, whether it's a political decision or even trying to nail down what a word means. Once you make that decision, you've, you've performed a bit of violence. And in fact, most of our lives is spent in this state of perhaps, this state of undecidability and desperately trying to fix to fix meaning on things. So I think that was the other sort of major effect that, that led to some of his philosophy. And uh, when he traveled to France, he didn't have it easy there for the first uh, couple of years. So uh, no. what was his first, uh, his early years in France like? I think he traveled in France when... Uh, when he was 18 years old, even a bit older? He was 19, yeah. 19 um, years old, right? Absolutely terrible. Um, <laughs> I mean, it was almost, again, almost Hollywood terrible. You know, he, he's finally going to go to this, the, the over there, this imaginary space that, you know, has, has, has existed, you know, and, and he's actually going to go there. On the boat, he vomits the whole way. He's just throwing up all the time. He arrives in Paris, and Paris is not the Paris we might be familiar with today. It's post-war Paris. A lot of the reconstruction of the place hasn't been done. It's dark, um, it's grimy. Um, he has to wear a school uniform basically all day, every day. Um, he's in dormitories. He just had an absolutely terrible time. Um, failed his exams two or three times, which isn't rare in France, actually. They're incredibly difficult exams. So, you know, Jean-Paul Sartre, the whole, you know, the whole gang failed the first time. Um, had to take amphetamines to try and get through things. One of his exams, he actually just walked out without actually filling anything in. Um, he was pretty miserable there. Um, and of course, at, at the same time and shortly afterwards, Algeria is starting to shift towards independence um, and whatever your position for against all of those things. It's a very unsettling thing. You've left this country and your parents are there and 
bombs are going off. And so he was, he was very miserable and, um, and really sort of struggled to fit in. That gradually, as he fell in love with philosophy, basically, he, he, he started to sort of be happier about that. But yeah, his first couple of years there were really disconcerting and, and very, very difficult. Uh, one of the most memorable parts about him that I remember in your book was when he submitted something. Uh, uh, it was to, to Foucault, I guess, who read it and said it's either A plus or fair. <laughs> yeah. Can you talk about yeah. that? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, one of the one of the things we've, we've talked about how difficult he is as a writer, and um, uh, if you read some of his school essays and and so on, you know, he obviously hasn't had the ideas that are going to, to make him famous, if we put it that way. But he's really still struggling to um, to to play the game, to to write a good, solid, you know, philosophical essay, starting you know, with the argument, putting forward the counter arguments, and then coming to a conclusion. He's really going, and constantly he gets this criticism from his tutors um saying you know his lecturers and so forth saying just you know you don't need to mention all this other stuff <laughs> you know you don't need to bring in 300 years of indian philosophy into it you don't need to be mentioning you know, obscure german philosophers on idealism um and yeah th there were papers that he wrote where i can imagine the teachers going okay it's not what we asked for um it's brilliant but you know if you actually want to pass <laughs> jackie what about you read the question and answer the question? Because that's that's the minimum we're asking for you. And he described himself later as um, a graphomaniac. You know, he one of the terrible challenges of writing the book, which I didn't realise when I agreed to the commission, was he wrote so much. Um, you know, there's, there's 100 books, um, often to three or 400 pages, but there's so many other articles. I, I still keep getting the horrors because someone will mention an article to me that he wrote or an essay he wrote. I've never heard of it. Um, essentially, he liked to sit and write and think, and that's what he did. He didn't really have great leisure activities. This is what he did. Um, so his essays were long and difficult, and as was, you know, I mean, his first ever book was a, a commentary and translation of Husserl's Origin of Geometry, which runs to about 12 pages, the actual Origin of Geometry. He tacks on a 120-page introduction to it. This is very Derrida. You know, he, 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 won't, he won't shut up, basically. And I'm sure that was the case you know, at high school and university as well. So I guess that's a perfect segue to my next question, which is his most uh, famous or infamous book of grammatology. And that's where he introduces the idea of deconstruction, which is one of the most uh, um, mm. heard of and also misunderstood terms, especially yeah. in English departments where I come from. So right, yes. uh, uh, talk to us about that book of grammatology and also deconstruction. Mm. What does it mean? Because to a lot of people, the idea of deconstruction is that... Uh, it's simply dismantling a text. It's mm, yeah. it's the opposite of construction, which is not really what deconstruction is about. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, I might start with the deconstruction first, and then move on to of grammatology. I mean, um, de deconstruction is in a sense dismantling, but it's not just dismantling. Um, Derrida was sort of borrowing a term from Heidegger, destruction with a K, destruction. Um, but sort of changing it slightly because he realised the word de destruction is so negative. So what he's, what he's essentially saying, and it's always very dangerous to say what Derrida is essentially saying because he was very against essentials, um, is that anything that's been constructed can be taken to pieces to see how it works, um, but that's not actually destroying it in any sense. It's still there after you've done that. So it's looking for some of the things that all philosophers look for, like power relationships within it or, or missing, missing ideas. You know, if, if a text is written from a you know, particular point of view and doesn't mention you know, black people, for instance, or you know, um, 
the, the, the place of Jack, black people in Jane Austen's novels. That's something to write about because there aren't any sort of thing. Um, and I apologise if there are any. I don't know. Um, but I'm pretty sure there's not. Um, so you're, do, you're doing that sort of stuff. But Derrida kind of takes it a step further in that he's saying that there's no such thing as a coherent text. We tend to read texts as though they can be coherent, as though there was some magical trick where you could actually make a text coherent. Um, and even if we kind of don't believe that in our own minds, we still tend to read them as if that's the case, as if, as if the author sits down at the start, writes the book, and it's a, a, a total thing. When in fact, you know, anyone who's written a book will know that you're patching together a load of stuff. So there's that aspect of it. But also you can't make a word mean the same thing right the way through a text, you know, and, and lots of what Derrida does is looking for places where um, philosophers have have kind of fudged their terms, have kind of used words in different ways, or novelists or, or you know, or filmmakers or whatever. So he's always looking for those sort of things. Now, once he's done that, the book is still there, but he's he's pulled apart some of the, the, the problems going on with it. You know, I, I, just to think of a, a quick example, which we'll come to later, or two quick examples. Um, he looks at Marx, he looks at the writings of Marx. Marx is the great materialist, says that our entire you know, personality is built on material stuff. You know, that's how we get our selfhood. Derrida, and he's brilliant at this stuff, you know, he goes, okay, I'm going to look for things like ghosts and spectres and immaterial stuff in Marx. You know, Marx wrote a lot about, um, you Shakespeare a lot, and Shakespeare's full of ghosts, you know, the first line of the Communist Manifesto, there is a spectre haunting Europe, the spectre, so the spectres are in there. So he'll look at that and he'll say, you know, the writer thinks they're doing this, but there's this thing haunting it. Um, just a, a really sort of banal, casual example. He knows whenever Husserl was writing a lot about time, and writing time gets you into real knots. It's very difficult um, to write about. He would always, when he got into trouble, invoke God. Now, Husserl is the least sort of theological philosopher there is. You know, never sort of builds any theory of God or anything like that. But Derrida almost sees him panic and go, oh, oh, God, God will solve this sort of thing. So it's looking for those sorts of things. But it's not just looking for it in text. It's looking for it anywhere. So something like the concept of God now, we can't prove whether there's a God or not. You know, we can hope there is. We can have faith there is. We can also have faith that there isn't. We can discuss it forever. Unless God actually arrives, we don't know, basically, while we're, while we're here on Earth. Um, so, so if God is this kind of fixed concept, we then look at everything going on around it. We can de deconstruct that idea and see why I might believe in God or why I might not believe in God, why this community believes in God, why this one doesn't, what historical stuff is going on. And then you look at all the religious writings and you place them in context as well. You see how they don't quite cohere. They don't quite make sense. And then finally, you do it with language. That language, I think actually our naive understanding of language is, is closer to what Derrida said, that we know that words change meaning over time. We know that what I'm saying now will be understood by different people in different ways. You know, there'll be someone listening to me now going, so he knows nothing about Derrida. There'll be someone saying, oh, that's that's really interesting. There'll be someone saying, of course, there's black people in Jane Austen. What are you doing? So my words will be, be changing. And, and, you know, we, we're constantly groping for these words. Um, and also we're speaking a language that we didn't come up with. You know, the, the words I'm using now are because I'm part of the English language. Um, so the meanings of those words have shifted over time. The meanings that you understand by them, you know, I, I'm Australian, I live in England, so I'm constantly aware of words that I use that, you know, don't resonate or words that they use that don't, don't resonate. So all of those things. So deconstruction is essentially just going into any of these situations, a text, a concept, a language, and looking for the things that don't quite work and seeing how they are, they reveal something about what's going on. So you're not, you're not pulling things apart. And I think 
people who do bad Derrida do tend to go, ha-ha, we've shown you that, I'm going to keep going with this metaphor because why not, we've shown you there's no people, in, there's no black people in Jane Austen, therefore she's racist and the society is racist. Whereas Derrida will be saying, okay, but why isn't she not? What's happening here? What's going on? Why is the language breaking down at this point, you know? Um, and, and why is, is this mention of character X has made their money from slavery, but that's not explored more and stuff. So he's looking at those sort of things. So that, that's deconstruction more or less. Anything that's been constructed can be deconstructed, but that's not to destroy it. It's merely to look at the workings and to show that the workings will never make it completely whole. Um, so of grammatology is, it's his breakthrough book. Um, he had three, he had this amazing year of, of, of being published where he had three books come out of grammatology. Writing and Difference was a collection of essays and speech and phenomena. And again, let's keep going with the Hollywood thing. Unknown philosopher working away on Husserl for year after year after year. He's, he's in his, you know, what, what is he? 37, sorry, by the time these books hit. So he's, he's you know, he's nothing special at this point. Um, and speech and phenomena is about voice and about how our own voice works for us and works for other people. Um, writing indifference is a, is a bunch of essays. Essay. Of grammatology, there's there's a really lovely video on YouTube of him talking about coming up with of grammatology, and so, and he says something like he's on a gondola in Venice uh, with his wife. They're on holiday, and he just says to her, I, I, "I think I've got it. I think I know what I've been trying to say, and I, I I've got this." And he describes it as this motor started going in his head that all this all this stuff he'd been fumbling towards suddenly came up, and it sounds like a really sort of banal thing that changed things for him. Um, he looked at the way philosophers have always privileged speech over writing. Okay. Um, and it's been quite bizarre. I mean, it starts with Plato. Plato that, you know, when we talk, we're, we're speaking truth. Once we write things down, it's it's degraded in some sense. It becomes lesser. He, he talks about the written word as, as like losing its parent. You know, it goes out into the world and can't be protected. He literally says can't be protected. And throughout philosophy, this has been one of the things that philosophers tend to say, even if there's no evidence for it. Now, someone like Rousseau, who features quite prominently in of grammatology, Rousseau does these you know mad you know passages about you know how only the spoken word makes sense and all writing is lies and stuff like that, and then writes another passage saying that he's too embarrassed to speak in public because you know because um, you know it's not truly who he is. But when he's writing, that's actually who he is. So it's like these these things don't make sense you know and and that this is one of the things that Derrida picks up so he then looks at the idea that this privileging of speech um, has been a, a thing that philosophy's held on to because it's identified in a sense speech with the soul so it's almost a theological concept that you know in, in one version of this I have an idea in my head I then put it into words I say those words you hear those words you take them into your head, and now the picture in your head is exactly the picture I had in my head. And philosophers have tended to believe this more or less. Um, I mean, Husserl, uh, we keep coming back to, but Husserl sort of said, as soon as I speak it, it's already become integrated. He actually thought the little monologue going in your head was actually your genuine self. And this gets very close to the to the, the Christian concept and, and many other concepts of soul, that somehow there is an actual true self in me that exists before I speak, that exists before I meet other people, that exists outside of conversation, and certainly exists before I write anything down. Um, Derrida noticed in Husserl, again, this, this little passage where Husserl had said, how do we keep hold of concepts? How do they get passed down? 
Um, now, if, if I come up with the concept of E equals MC squared, for instance, um, now I can tell all my mates and they can try and remember and, you know, they can tell other people. But eventually if all of us fall asleep or our memory goes or whatever, eventually that concept's not going to get out into the wider world. Um, how does it get out in the wider world? We write it down. And this to herself was a banal concept to most philosophers have been a banal concept. For Derrida, this was a revelation. It was suddenly that writing wasn't this degraded concept. Writing was, in fact, how we passed history onto each other, how we fix words. You know, I know what the word, to use a Husserl example, what the word lion means, you know, that animal with the mane. You know, you're in Australia. We're, we're so far apart from each other. How do we know? Because we've read it, all of these things. So suddenly this was another step getting away from this kind of solid identity, soul thing that was inside us to looking at the way that communication and the self are made through conversation, through the other, through through all of these other ways, and that we then sort of retroactively call that ourselves. Um, so so it's, it all sort of comes together. The, the, the thing about grammatology that uh, I mean, the other perhaps one proud other proud moment I have in my book is I say it's bonkers. And uh, my editor actually wanted to take out that word, thought that was, you know, that was juvenile, and I don't care. Bonkers. It's, it is a bonkers book. You know, it is, it is written by someone who's obviously incredibly excited, having had this idea, who is trying to shove in everything they know. You know, there are, there are wildly sort of bits of it that are completely off the point, um, you know, frankly. Um, it's, it's essentially two essays shoved together, which don't really fit together. Um, so it's this nuts book. And, and I, I, I myself was a person who sort of came to Derrida and picked up of grammatology and went, what the hell is this about? I don't understand a word of this. Um, and the, the one thing I, I'd sort of like to pass on to, to listeners about if you want to tackle Derrida is, A, there are other books where we, which we can discuss, which might be easier ways in. But if you read of grammatology, enjoy the ride. You know, it is, it is such a book which can really, you can read four pages and go, I don't understand it. And yeah, you can read 100 pages and say, I don't understand. But gradually, you will get there, like, like you know, reading Ulysses or something like that. You, you get this bonkers book and these bits of knowledge start to come and, and it gradually grows into you know, an incredibly powerful book of philosophy and, and the sort of thing you can dip into and go, that's an amazing thing about Chinese language or Chinese and symbolic stuff. Um, but yeah, it doesn't make sense, but it's, it's glorious. And um, yeah, so really, yeah, fantastic book. I think you made an excellent comparison with Ulysses. That's what I wanted to bring up as well. So uh, I've talked to people, different people who read Derrida. I must say I've read parts of that book because I, I was just put off because I couldn't understand it. Right, yes. Uh, but I guess the trick is, as you mentioned, just read it and enjoy it, mm, take, yeah. it take, take it in, just like you're listening to a piece of music. And, and uh, guess it, in that book, it's also a performance of his philosophy. It's, the book is, is deconstructing itself because he, exactly. he also had this idea that deconstruction is not something we bring into a text. It's already happening in the text. That's and, absolutely uh, right, yes. It's not yeah. only this piece of writing, but he had other articles in which he, he plays with this idea and you can see that his, his, his writing is actually a performance of philosophy in a way. Exactly, yeah. And, and I mean, he does that, um, you know, as we were saying right at the start, that, you know, once you've said that, that meaning isn't stable, then any declarative sentence is, is highly suspect. Um, and I think some sort of bad Derridians just take this as a license to just, you know, not speak clearly or to, to use endless puns or, you know, all of those sort of stuff. And, um, and Derrida didn't do that because Derrida was brilliant and, and they're not necessarily brilliant. But he does write from different angles and come from different ways. And Joyce is an is a, is a interesting and valid comparison, you know. one of And Joyce was very important to Derrida. Um, in that idea that, particularly in things like Finnegan's Wake, but Ulysses as well, 
where words have equivocal meanings. They could mean one thing in one context or one thing in another. So Derrida is very aware of that. And some of, I mean, some of Derrida's shorter texts are beautiful just as texts. I mean, you, in a sense, don't have to be doing that thing where you're looking for the philosophy behind them. You know, some of his later writings about religion, for instance, um, Gift of Death, um, are just very beautiful and quite moving pieces of literature um, and aspire to it and, and use the techniques of literature. You know, that was one thing that he was very aware of. Once you've said that philosophy is a type of writing, then other types of writing are valid. And one, one of the nice things about Derrida is he doesn't, in the way that some philosophers have done, exclude fiction or exclude poetry or exclude art. He, he thinks they're also ways of telling the truth about the world. Um, so he uses some of the devices of, of, of fiction in his work, you know, characters and, and you know, ultimately, I mean, the, the birth of philosophy can be marked as Plato. And Plato's writing plays, you know, dialogues. This is, you know, this is part of the founding method of philosophy is to to do those, use rhetorical devices, use use hyperbole, use, you know, all of those things. So he does do that. And speaking of uh, starting to read Derrida, uh, we had a conversation earlier a few months ago, and uh, uh, you taught me you said that maybe Spectre of Marx is a better start uh, with Derrida. And in your book, you provide this beautiful background to to to, to the time when this book was written. It was the fall of communist uh, uh, countries in Eastern Europe, the fall of Berlin Wall, and then we have Derrida writing the Spectre of Marx. And I think it's in that book that introduces the idea of ontology and ghosts. Yeah. Uh, so tell us about that, please. Yeah, sure. I mean, I think it's a really, really interesting book and, and it's becoming more interesting again now, uh, which we'll come back to. Um, so it's written, so as I said, Derrida, communism in France, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s was large. I mean, a third of the population voted for the Communist Party in, the, in one of the 50s elections. Um, Certainly for philosophers, it was huge. Um, people like Althusser, uh, Balibar, um, doing reading capital and so forth. Derrida always resisted this. Um, partially it was what we said before, that he, he didn't like joining clubs, as it were. Um, partially it was very political. The, um, the Communist Party, to its shame, had, you know, had been against Algerian independence. Um, so it was very much a, a, a big issue for him. Um, not always against it, Algerian independence, but at certain points, you know, very strongly. Um, so, so he, he was constantly being sort of asked to write about communism, asked to write about Marxism and so forth, um, and didn't really, um, he says sometimes he did, but you know, there are tend to say those sort of things. Um, so 89, the Berlin Wall falls, um, and in a sense, and for those of us who were alive at the time, it was like communism's finished. That's the end of, you know, it proved it was wrong, didn't work and Western capitalism has won. And however much you celebrated that or didn't celebrate it or whatever, that was kind of the narrative. At this point, and because, you know, he's all, he's, he, this is the sort of bastard he is, he goes, right, this is the moment I'm now going to write about communism and Marxism. I'm going to, you know, write about it because everyone else is, you know, I'm going to swim against the tide again. Um, so so this essay, as, as we sort of touched on before, he looked at how uh, Marx had used the idea of ghosts and spectres and phantoms and those sorts of things. So he's, he's looking, first of all, at, at, at those things within Marx's work, um, including things like money. I mean, money is something which Marx obviously writes a lot about. But where is money? You know, money is this invisible thing that flows through. OK, if we have a, a wad of cash, we see it. But all of our lives are about, you know, taxes or, or, or funding this or saving that or whatever. We have this running 
points score. And actually, at the moment, with, with you know the way we, we pay for stuff on cards and, and online, it's becoming more and more like that. You just have this number above your head that's running up and down and up and down. So money is kind of this spectral thing in our lives as well. Um, and also, he's writing against the capitalist triumphalism, you know, as he points out, and, and it's some of his strongest political writings, you know, you say capitalism is one and, and is good, but look at all these people in poverty. Look at, you know, these, you know, there's more slaves in the world now than there were back in the 18th century in various countries. All of these things, capitalism is working for an elite few. It's not working for everyone. And at that point, I think a lot of people sort of, a lot of people who are, you know, now would be raging against capitalism at the time sort of thought, yeah, well, maybe, maybe it's right. Maybe it has the right amount of personal freedom, right amount of freedom. They're saying, no, that's, that's not the case. But he also, and I think this is where it's become really, really interesting again now. Um, in fact, since the book came out, which is a relief in a, in a sense, because I could have really got trapped in this. Um, we're seeing in terms of the woke thing, which, which is a phrase always used by people who are against it. You know, people are woke, you know, they, they all of these things and against um, critical race theory. And as has been said very often, you know, this is all a version of Marxism. Now it's said so stupidly that, you, that it's, it's disappointing philosophically. And it's a bit boring in a sense to hear these people saying cultural Marxism, cultural Marxism, you know, that's what's going on. Because the people obviously haven't read Marx, they don't understand a word of it. They're just using it as a, as a thing to you know, prod people like me. Um, but again, it's Marx. So the spectre of Marx has risen again. And so Derrida is really talking about, and this is always the case with, with, with Derrida, something doesn't define itself, it's defined by what's around it. So capitalism in, in trying to hypercharge itself and trying to stay on top of things, um, trying to deal with its crises, again, has to invoke this ghost of Marx. You know, it's, it's a completely pointless exercise and it's completely useless. But Derrida will say that it can't help itself. It's structurally built into capitalism to have this other. Um, I know Islam has been the other for, for the West in many ways in the last few years. Marxism is coming back as the other. So, so all of us from a personal identity right through to great political and social systems define themselves against something. And they don't exist before they do that defining. They, they exist in that dialogue. Um, so, so Spectres of Marx, I think, actually when I wrote the book, which is only not three years ago um, and, and came out you know, 18 months ago, that had only just really started to kick off. And, you know, the French election are talking about work all the time. Um, over here, the, um, the, the Tory party chairman gave a speech, Oliver Dowden, in, in Washington the other day, talking about this terrible, these terrible woke people, you know, that everyone's going to be transgender in the future and, and, and all of these things. And, you know, and, and you know, it's an attack on, on the white self. Um, so, so Spectres of Marx, apart from being probably one of his more sort of lucid texts and by lucid i mean you know he's 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 writing for an audience that don't necessarily know his stuff i mean there are bits where he goes a bit nuts but but mostly he's he's laying out an argument so it's a really nice way in but it's just become again incredibly relevant now just looking at this this idea of the way that marx continues to haunt us and continues you know to 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 do this um and the phrase you mentioned that i haven't quite, quite come to yet is hauntology now in french um uh, and actually, in your pronunciation, I, I noticed um, it's much closer to ontology, ontolo hauntology, ontology. My my terrible, crappy accent. I, I say hauntology. Um, so they're 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 almost homonyms in in French. So ontology is the science of what there is. So you know, basic philosophical concept: what is there? You know, atoms, gods, furniture. That's ontology. Um, hauntology is Derrida's concept for what there isn't. So, and he's very sort of aware. And again, I think it's quite 
interesting thing about psychoanalysis in this context, you know, the unconscious, we can't actually see the unconscious. Um, you know, we can see its effects or we can believe that things are being repressed there. But it's this thing that is there that doesn't actually have ontological status. So Derrida does this with lots of things that, you know, the, the, the future, for instance, is hauntological. We don't know what it is. We, we can't actually touch it. We can't feel it. The past, to an extent, is hauntological. You know, we can, we can read a lot about it. Um, but also the other is hauntological, the, the things out there. The word perhaps invokes these futures that may or may not happen. Um, he's also interested in, and this is, again, in Inspectors of Marx, in fact, where he brings it in, is these futures which didn't happen. You know, this, um, this idea that, 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 you know, communism would eventually arrive and also be great for everyone didn't happen, but continues to haunt the imagination. Um, voices from another room, um, people we miss, people who have died, you know, that, that, that we go through. Again, um, Freud was very good on the, on the act of mourning. We're always mourning for things, for people gone, um, and mourning for the potential death of other people, people who might leave us. So there's all these things which Derrida says, and I think I think rightly, philosophy hasn't explored. Philosophy is always looking for what there actually is, and never looking at what there isn't. Um, and if, if you kind of want you know, some pleasure out of this, and although hopefully just me chatting is pleasure, um, uh, hauntological music became a really interesting thing, particularly in sort of the 90s and 2000s in, in the UK, and I think a bit in Oz and other places. This hauntological music where it's always sound, kind of sounds distant and spectral and often uses um, like the music themes from the 1950s or old technologies, old tapes, you know, using cassettes and that sort of thing. This kind of nostalgia for a past and nostalgia for a future that didn't happen. And I think it's, you know, it's a really interesting idea of Derrida's, this hauntology. Thank you. That was a very comprehensive and uh, good answer. Now, speaking of uh, ghosts and the spectra of Marx, let's talk about the spectra of uh, Derrida. Uh, uh, a lot of conservatives, you did touch upon that a lot of being haunted by Derrida. He's just this boogeyman to, to, to name and shame uh, for things they don't even know what they are. Um, I think for, uh, I, I talked I talk to you earlier and I did say that Derrida was always at the forefront of pop culture. He was controversial in his own lifetime, but it seems that for some time, maybe early in 21st century, people had forgotten about Derrida, but suddenly has come back again. And uh, you, in your book, you talk about Daniel Derrida, I guess, and uh, uh, some people even go so far to talk, uh, to, to attribute the rise of political demagogues such as uh, Donald Trump to French theory. And when it comes to French theory, there are two infamous, there are a lot of infamous people, but I guess the most two infamous people are Jacques Derrida and uh, Jacques Lacan. Uh, so what is it about French theory that all these people misunderstand? They all like to talk about, say, for example, all those French Marxists or post postmodern Marxists, which is a weird yeah. term, or yeah. cultural Marxism, which again is one of those yeah. made up terms that doesn't really yeah. make any sense. No, it doesn't. It makes absolutely none. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, there's lots of answers to that. I mean, within the philosophical community, I mean, I think Derrida was quite challenging to particularly analytical, analytic philosophy, which holds sway particularly in the ang Anglosphere, um, which is which is that idea that you use logical concepts and you have clarity and you narrow down meaning and narrow down meaning and you eventually get to a truth. That's traducing analytic philosophy terribly, but let's let's go with that. Um, whereas, I mean, as we've said, deconstruction says you're not going to get to a truth. 
and also is saying that that clarity is actually just a way of speaking as well. It's a it's a it's a tactic. You know, it's it's like um, when people talk about somehow realist novels being closer to the truth. No, they're not. It's it's still a rhetorical device to pretend that something's realist. Um, and Derrida says, you know, clarity is just philosophy doing one way of doing philosophy. Um, and in fact, I, I only recently stumbled upon it, and it's obsessing me slightly. Um, Derrida was asked about the analytic continental split at one stage, and he said, well, it's actually the analytic and traditional philosophy. So analytic philosophy is actually this, this philosophy that took over in the 20th century in the Anglosphere. Traditional philosophy, which you call continental, is actually looking at the big picture stuff like religion, like ethics, like art, like how are we to live. That's, that's what I'm doing. And one of the revelations for me in writing about Derrida was this idea he was trying to capture what it's like to be alive. And I think all great philosophers do that. And his answer was it's confusing and it's undecided and it's all to play for and it's weird. And, you know, all of those things that analytic philosophy doesn't like to say about life. It doesn't want life to be strange and inconclusive. Um, so there, there, there's that answer in the way that he has haunted philosophy to an extent. In the wider cultural um, area, I mean, he was in the 90s sort of everywhere. You know, he was he was on coffee mugs. He was on T-shirts. Um, he was, you know, he, he kind of swept the academy. He was charismatic, smoked a pipe, you know, spoke in you know, bizarre gnomic sentences and, and also did things like, and I remember my people at the time who were into, you know, film and, and, and crazy music and stuff, loved the fact that when he sat down for an interview, he would say, you know, I have to explain to you, this is an artificial situation, that, you know, there was a camera here, there was a sound person. These questions have obviously been written down. I've seen these questions, so my answers will be. So he would, he would deconstruct the reality of television, which we, we're so much more used to now. You know, we see ads which which make fun of themselves. We see films where they break down the fourth wall, all, the, all those sorts of things. Um, so so he, he was very good at that. Um, but the other side of that, of course, you know, A, there's a bit of professional jealousy. You know, he's the rock star philosopher. And if you're beefing away trying to work out, you know, logic in a small room in a study somewhere, then you're going to get a bit pissed off. Um, but, you know, also, also he kind of, he... he he his influence in areas like film, like literature, like all of architecture, in fact, was so pervasive that he was a bit everywhere in a, in a sense. And therefore came the accusations, this isn't proper philosophy. Because of course, proper philosophy, why would an architect build a building based on, you know, something that wasn't philosophy, you know, leaving aside Wittgenstein, he built his own, but you know, that, that was the kind of feel to it. Um, and and so what, what his function is now seems to be that great disruptor again, you know, Lacan, Foucault, um, Derrida, because they're difficult to read, it saves you having to read them. So they can become slogans. You can take a bit of them out of context, you know, Derrida saying there is nothing outside the text and say, well, Derrida says it's all, you know, we're just making stuff up, uh, which Derrida wasn't, he wasn't relativist at all. Um, and also it's often used by people who, say stuff like fake news or whatever, you know, let, let's use Donald Trump as, as the exemplar of this, you know, Donald Trump will, will lie outright about everything. But then when he's criticized for that, the thing is, well, it's, it's you cultural Marxists, you, you people who are saying there's no truth, you know? So if I say there's, you know, there's twice as many people at my inauguration than, than at the other one, then this is, you know, partially your fault, you know, in the sense that you, you say there's no, there's no actual truth. So Derrida has performed that role. Um, and I mean, little things like his Frenchness um, is, you know, seen as, you know, these crazy French doing their stuff. Um, and also more and more. And obviously, I get feedback on various social media platforms, and mostly it's positive. And I do occasionally get, you know, 
the Jew Derrida. You know, you see that in other places that, you know, this has become, you know, because whenever we have a society in, in this sort of situation, it's eventually the non-white <laughs> exemplar who will get, who will cop it, whether they, you know, they're, they're Jewish or they're Arab or it's Islam or, or black or whatever, or women um, will be the ones to cop it. So, so this sort of stuff um, with Derrida, I, I see it coming down the line. I, I, I found it really hard to believe initially, but, you know, here is this crazy Jewish person, you know, talking about saying there's no truth. Um, and that's the cultural world we're living in at the moment. Um, what's disappointing about it in, well, there's many things that are disappointing about it, but I'm sure you've had the experience and many people listening will have had this experience. It's really hard to argue against them because these ideas just no, there's no logical construction behind it. There's, they're using Marxism, the word Marxism, for instance, as a completely empty slogan. It's, they don't even know what it is. Um, same with Derrida, you know, haven't read any Derrida, don't actually know who he is, but you can yell Derrida and off you go. And and so therefore it's incredibly difficult for anyone to argue against it um, because it's it's not it's not a logical argument in any sense. So, um, but yeah, so back he comes. And and I do think, and I, I, I'm always loath to say he's like Socrates in the fact that, you know, that they'll be overstating the case. But this has been one of the things that philosophy has always done and done successfully, isn't it? To disrupt our thinking and you know and and socrates is given poison for 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 denying truth and for screwing up the young screwing up young people this is exactly the charge against derrida and for very similar reasons he's, he, he won't take you won't take yes for an answer as it were yeah philosophy kills and it's supposed to kill, <laughs> <right>? <laughs> hopefully not too often but yeah <laughs> yeah yeah and uh yeah i, I sometimes come across people or I read, you know, on social media, or I listen to different people talking about French theory. And one of the most common accusations is that these people are, uh, first of all, anti-West. They hate Western civilization. That's why they are trying to dismantle the foundation of truth, and hence the foundation of identity and gender and, and our faith and all that. And uh, they accuse them of being relativists. And I was actually listening to some uh, guy on a podcast, he was with Jordan Peterson. I don't remember the name of that person, but he had written a book about, you know, the kind of book that postmodern philosophy is rubbish. I don't remember the title, but, and he was actually a, an evolutionary psychologist, I guess. And he talked about uh, the family dinner with his children and I guess uh, his boy's girlfriend or his girl's boyfriend, I don't remember, that one of them was a postmodernist and he said that, well, at the table, I asked, oh, so you're a postmodernist. So what does it mean? And uh, he talked about sunrise as if sunrise doesn't exist. And it was a very weird anecdote. It was a typical anecdote that we all hear, like uh, postmodernists are absolute relativists and they don't believe in, uh, in, 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 in the physical reality we see out there, which is nonsensical. And I guess it's one of the accusations that has always been leveled against Derrida, Derrida being anti-truth or Derrida being a relativist. Which yeah. is not true. No, it's not true, and it's something that frustrated him at the time. And he again and again said, "You have to understand, I'm not." You know, um, it's a para well, it's not paraphrasing; it's making up an example. You know, Derrida believed if it was raining outside and you went outside, you'd get wet. Okay, that's that's not. There's no problem with that. Um, but what he said is, if as soon as I come in and talk about it, 
and putting it into some sort of language and I can describe it as, you know, I'm, I'm soaked or, you know, you know, I'm, you know, or gosh, it's a, it's a little bit drizzly out there or whatever. I, I'm already putting it into a social context that people will understand. So that's the sort of thing you're saying. But the other thing about it for me uh, that frustrates me is I think actually in our day-to-day lives, and I do like to always bring Derrida back to this, this is actually how we operate with truth. You know, the, the, the idea of truth that is, is, is sort of propounded as existing somehow and that Derrida's mucking it up. It's not actually one we, we function with particularly. We deal with mathematical truths. We deal with, we read a poem and write in the margin of how true. Um, we have a conversation with a friend and think, oh, that was very true. Um, and, and we, in our day-to-day life, have these different types of truths that we, that we inhabit, that we, we discuss. We switch between them without even noticing. You know, that's, uh, you know I, can, I can do some maths and then I can read a poem and I don't go, well, hang on now, I have to look at these two versions of truth. Do they match up? Are they different? What's going on there? You know, that's not what we do. We actually move between these things. So to say that the truth is contextual, that, you know, it's built on stuff. Still, you know, if you have 300 people at inauguration or you have 600 people at inauguration, there is no postmodernist, deconstructionist or, or anyone who would say that 300 is more than 600. It's, it's just, you know, it's, it's, it's a nonsense, basically. And, um, you know, to, to, to say we can, it's like I said before, you know, you, you, can, you can deconstruct a chair. If you want to to look at you know the, how it was made, who paid for it, what what you know what the ergonomics are and stuff like that, the chair is still there. You can still sit on it. So you know that's that's kind of the important. You might you might then think of different chairs to, to have in the future or, or, or any of those sort of things, but it's still there. And 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 Derrida was never relativist in the way that he's accused of. And and I always I more often than not think that it's it's done maliciously without actually thinking about whether Derrida was relativist or not. It's just very much easier to say. He's a relativist, relativist, which he just wasn't. And I guess uh, the next question might just boil your blood, which is about Jordan Peterson, right? Because he's one of the fair, well, right? It was one of the people who has really brought forth this, these kinds of accusations against postmodern philosophy and also Jack Derrida, because he considers him to be, to be the progenitor of, of, of this woke culture, now whatever that means, and also um you know the idea of truth not existing so uh how do you feel when you listen to him does he know what he's talking about i feel incredibly disappointed frankly um i i I sometimes feel angry but i feel mostly disappointed because he is obviously intelligent um and certainly some of his earlier funnier stuff um he's trying to put forward a point of view you know he is Uh, and you get the impression that you know after fame he pushes buttons more than he does any of the sort of sensible arguing um i find him particularly um disappointing in terms of derrida because i think there would be an interesting discussion to be had about what he thinks derrida is doing and about whether it's right wrong any of those things but he just obviously hasn't read him i mean it's it's so incredibly obvious if you've read any derrida or understand any derrida that Peterson's version of Derrida is not just wrong and not just pushing buttons or whatever. He just hasn't actually seemed to read him. Um, and I, I, my, my sort of humble brag is that there was actually a conversation between Stephen Fry, the comedian, polymath and stuff like that, um, between him and Jordan Peterson. And towards the end, Stephen Fry says, have you read Peter Salmon's biography of Derrida? It might change your mind, which was lovely for me. But immediately Peterson changed the subject. And it's it's I've seen him, I try not to watch too much of him because it's the same thing over and over again. Whenever Derrida is brought up or, or any of that crew, 
he immediately changes the subject or just gives a version of them that's completely incorrect. And, you know, part of me just wants to get Jordan Peterson sitting down in a room with a Derrida book, an introduction to Derrida, and say, can you just read it? And then once you have, then come back and take place in the debate. You may still think he's crap. You may still disagree strongly with him, any of those things. But at least you won't just be saying stuff about this completely different person and this completely different philosopher. And it's incredibly you know, frustrating. And obviously it's then influential because if Jordan Peterson isn't going to read him and try and understand him, then those who follow Jordan Peterson aren't going to read him and try and understand him. So suddenly this ripple effect happens that there's this Jacques Derrida who's nothing to do with Jacques Derrida out there in the popular culture. Now, I think sometimes Derrida would have found that hilarious. I find it hilarious sometimes that, you know, there's this puppet figure out there, you know, screwing with people's heads again. But ultimately, you know, I just, I, I really, of, of all of that crew, of all of that lot, you know, the Petersons, the, the Glenn Becks and all that sort of stuff, James Lindsay, most of them can just go do whatever they want to, you know, they're just screaming and throwing, you know, toys out of the pram. But Peterson, you do just want to grab by the scruff and just say, please read him. And then we'll have the conversation because you can do it. You're intelligent. You, you've written books. You've, you've, you know, you've said occasionally some pretty interesting things. Why won't you read him? And it's almost, it, you know, again, to get back to Freud, it seems to me like a resistance that, you know, to actually read him would, you know, would screw with his head too much. So, yeah, that's my take on Jordan Peterson. <laughs> uh, so let's talk about uh, Derrida's, one of Derrida's close friends, Paul Demand. Uh, and in the book, you you do talk about him and also, uh, you know, his collaboration with Nazis propaganda come into, comes into life, which is, which is a significant moment in his uh, life. Can, can, can you talk about uh, Paul Lemans and his relation with uh, Jacques Derrida? Yeah, very, very complex for Derrida. Um, the man was a brilliant theorist at Yale um, and various places. Um, for me... I think he was probably the most purely brilliant Derridian in the sense that he took Derrida's ideas and ran with them and talked a lot about rhetoric. And, and, and so, so many sort of followers of Derrida, it's just quoting Derrida all the time. The man took his fundamental insight about, you know, the instability of text and, and, and narrative techniques and so forth and wrote brilliantly about it, deconstructed stuff, you know, created new things. was very close to Derrida. Um, he was there at the start of Derrida's life, they phoned each other off and they were in constant communication. Um, and dies, Derrida writes a moving memoir, a moving speech that he gives at the funeral. Um, all of that. So everything good about Paul Demand. Um, shortly afterwards, it comes out that he worked for a Nazi newspaper uh, when he was young, in his 20, early 20s. Um, which, you know, for all of us, you go there, but for the grace of God, what would I have done in a Nazi country? I'm trying to get a job. Maybe I would have done that. He doesn't do it for very long. So, okay, not not so great, but okay, that, that's just a bit of a, a stain on his reputation. But um, then it comes out that he was actually fired from the Nazi paper um, for sort of trying to take people's jobs. Um, so, you know, so he was seen as ethically corrupt by a Nazi newspaper, which is you know, quite difficult to do. Um then turns out that he then set up shell companies for publishing and just took a load of money. Um, turns out that he um, he came to the United States and he was already married and married again, so he's a bigamist. Um, basically a serial liar. Um, uh, just insane. He just lied and lied and lied, made up papers in order to get into universities that he, he'd never written. 
um, pathological in all of this. Um, and, you know, eventually becomes this sort of very distinguished professor. Um, and all of this gradually comes out uh, over time that, you know, all of the, the, these lies, these half-truths, these, these, this stealing money by, you know, setting up companies that didn't exist, um, anti-Semitism, obviously. Um, so this comes out in slow motion and Derrida's caught up in it. And Derrida's caught up, up in it for a couple of reasons. One is very close to the man, of course. Two is he wasn't quick enough to react um, to what was going on and just do what we what we are used to now of the public apology. <laughs> um, uh, secondly, he'd recently been in another controversy about Heidegger. Um, the, you know, Heidegger, as, as I'm sure many of you all know, um, was a, one of the great philosophers of the 20th century, but also joined the National Socialists and, you know, spoke about, you know, the renewal of the university by the Fuhrer sort of stuff, um, which Derrida had actually tackled um, in a book where he sort of analysed the use of the word spirit. The book is called Off Spirit, the use of the word spirit in in Heidegger, where Heidegger in his philosophy had said, we don't use the word spirit anymore, this great word that Hegel and the Germans have used, spirit, let's not use it. Then when he becomes a Nazi, he starts using spirit with capital letters and, and, and so on. Um, and the, Derrida's book happened to come out when a book came out, which basically just plowed into Heidegger saying the man's a Nazi. And there was nothing new particularly in the book, but Derrida was then seen as defending Heidegger. He write, he, Derrida then writes, uh, I think, a terrible paper about Paul de Man, where um, essentially um, he says, you know, we need to analyse what it must have been like for Paul de Man to live with these lies. What, what is that like as a person? Who cares at this point? You know, this is, a, this is a paper to write in hundreds of years' time. It's not a paper to write immediately afterwards. So, um, so it was a bad paper. It was a bad moment. Um, uh, all of this stuff's happening. And, of course, it gives fodder to those who say that he's anti-truth you know suddenly Derrida has all these Nazis supporting his philosophy in the, in their terms they you know Derrida's into Heidegger Derrida's into Paul de Man they're Nazis therefore this terrible deconstruction is, is some sort of you know terrible Nazi plot um, so it was incredibly bruising for Derrida what I most respect about him I think was he above from perhaps some of the stuff he did about feminism but he took on this challenge and he started to really think about ethics. He started to really think about, okay, if deconstruction is saying in some sense that it's, that it's a, a path forward in philosophy, it has to tackle this head on. It has to say that it has an ethics to it. Um, and a lot of his later writing, he said he'd actually been doing it all his life and just not explicitly, but ultimately um, he saw it as an ethical thing to be looking at the way the self is constructed, the way texts are constructed, the way society is constructed as a dialogue with the other. And his, his later writings are a lot about hospitality. What does it mean to offer hospitality to another person? Or about the gift. What it, What is a gift? What is the, the exchange that happens in a gift? So he has this incredible ethical turn. Now, one could argue that that's just where his philosophy would take him. And I think he mostly did argue that's where his philosophy took him. But for me, as a biographer who likes these little details, um, I really think he was very bruised by that stuff in the 80s. Um, because, I mean, he's not long used to being famous, you know. He's, I mean, fame, we're used to just someone who's now famous and they cope with it. But lots of people who get famous don't cope with it. He's just a philosopher, but he's world famous and is now being accused of being a Nazi and, you know, sheltering Nazis. I think it really, really affected him. And I think he wrote more deeply and more um, spiritually in many ways, more certainly more ethically after the demand incidents and after i think he cocked up and i think he 
I'm not sure he actually acknowledged how much he cocked up, but I think he, I think he did, and I think he tried then to adjust to that situation. Peter, thank you very much for your time. Always a pleasure to talk to you. Been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much for inviting me.